0: Block Talk Radio. Uh-oh, guess what day it is? Julie, ah huh? Julie, ah huh? Guess what day it is? Guess what day it guess is. is? Guess what day it is? <laughs> Anybody? Anybody? Mike, 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 huh? What day is it, Mike? Huh? Woo-hoo! Listen, guess what today is? Listen, guess what today is?
1: It's hump day.
0: Okay. Woo-hoo!
2: This is the Donaldson Files. This is Tom Donaldson. I am, we're, we're waiting for uh, our guest, Will Riley, to show up shortly. Uh, we're going to have a lively conversation dealing with what I call the scientific class. And the question that comes into play, we're going to attempt to answer, and this will be the part – this will be uh, a two-part show, this this Wednesday and next Wednesday. And what we're going to talk about is what I call the leadership class, and the scientific class is part of that leadership class. Are we seeing science being directed and biased toward the needs of the political class? what we see in science looking for truth. And that's the question we're going to ask. I'm Tom Donaldson, the chairman of America's PAC. I am also the project director and research associate, America's Majority Foundation, the author of eight books, none of them yet bestsellers, but they all should be, including the rise of national populism and democratic socialism and uh, the boxing and shadows, which is the history of black boxers in the United States from the turn of the 19th, turn of the 20th century to the present. And uh, welcome, uh, Professor Riley, um, who is um, I'll tell you what, Professor, I'll let you give your own resume because you've got a pretty good length of one.
3: All right, thanks. I mean, I, I usually go with the short one on radio and TV appearances. I'm Will Riley. I'm a professor of political science at Kentucky State University, one of the uh, classic historically black colleges here in Frankfort, Kentucky. I'm also the author of the books Hate Crime, Hoax, and Taboo. Um, and as always, Tom, good to be on the show.
2: Yeah. well, I tell you what we do. The reason I wanted the show because it, I mean, I've been looking at the COVID. There's an article on Scientific America which I sent you, and I thought it was so fascinating because it kind of details the you know the nastiness that's gone on with the COVID and and how it is that we're seeing censorship of articles we're seeing you know, uh, you know, scientists essentially being attacked if they go against the conventional wisdom, which in case of COVID ends up being true. And, and certainly you've been a researcher. I mean, the, you've researched, let's say, the lockdown on three different occasions twice for us, <clears> but you're also an expert, I'm going to say, one, you know, who has a very good knowledge of crime statistics and And, again, many of the things you have found in your book, Taboo, um, again, goes against the conventional wisdom that people hear repeated in the media. But it's the kind of – and I guess what I fear the most, and I know we've had this conversation in the past, is are we going to get to the council culture starts to the scientific community? Uh, you You know, we've seen in the COVID debate, uh, we've seen it in the climatology debate. Uh, we've seen it in, let's say, the crime and racial debate, uh, which you've been a party to. And uh, we get to that point that, let's say, folks yeah. like yourself fear you're going to be either a – I used to word cancel culture, but getting things published, being able to you know, maintain a position at a university, if you dare to say something – that runs, not so much controversial, runs against the counter, against the conventional wisdom. And I know you, know, you I, I know you just, you did this today. I don't know you've been doing this routinely, where you've basically come up with three truths that oftentimes <laughs> bounce against the conventional wisdom.
3: Well, that, that's something I'm going to start doing either every day or once a week. But no, I, I noticed the same thing you did, which is that science yeah. seems to be increasingly politicized, and this is. I know I often irritate people with the both sides of them, but this isn't necessarily a Republican or a Democratic thing. I mean, if you were to say science doesn't really show that prayer works, which is something that's debated, my conservative friends would be up in arms. If you were to say, this is a really obvious, funny recent finding, but science shows that if you are a sex worker on OnlyFans, you're more likely to be depressed. A lot of my liberal feminist friends would be up in arms. So I I definitely think you're seeing – science politicized science used by people that have these political or social or feminist or whatever else points to make. Um, But what I started doing on Twitter was just saying crap. That's absolutely uncontested, but that people get really, really angry and agitated about. So like the three posts today, um, one of them was the SAT does kind of measure how smart you are. Um, One of them was traditional Islam isn't feminist. And one of them was males and females are biologically different. And, how are you, man? And all of those, like the the males and females one, got 158 likes, a couple of sort of dislike responses, retweeted about 15 times. So the point there was very much is there anything that's not contested? So, yeah, we have this issue with the political parties and with groups within the country trying to claim certain science of their own. We see this with masks a lot.
2: Yeah. Well let's go into the mask issue. Uh and then we're gonna go into the Scientific American. But uh and again, I I'm I'm i I view myself as agnostic. like yourself, I'll wear a mask you know, in crowds. Yeah, you know, what I you know plus uh, in plus in, Iowa, in Kentucky, you know, if you go to any grocery store, any drug store, if you go into the gym, uh you know, it basically says wear a mask. <laughs> you know, you have to enter with a mask. And I don't, you know, I, I don't view this. I mean, in some ways, I don't get all that bent out of shape wearing the mask. Other than, I say, the only time I've had it, you know, it's like during Pilates. You know, we're we're supposed to wear masks during Pilates, and halfway through, I'm like, I can't breathe. <laughs> so I literally have to leave the room, go to another room, get a get a deep breath, and go back in, and work out, and do the finish the workout. But and, and I know that. And I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm to me, I interpret the data, you might get a slight benefit from wearing a mask, but certainly, you're, you know, it's slight at best. Now, you had some very interesting interpretation of the Danish study, because uh, you didn't come on and yeah. basically say what everybody else on my side was saying, name our side basically, it doesn't work. You, you did interpret the data that way. Did you kind of talk about that?
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, so the masks thing, I I pretty much word for word agree with you about masks. I mean, I wear them to make old ladies feel more comfortable. You know, one of the things about COVID that I've said every time I'm on the show, let's never minimize it, but the average victim is 82 or 83. So for me, or for that matter for yourself, if you're talking about male former athletes under 65, like when I talk to my doctor, who's a friend of mine, I mean, my projected risk of death if I contracted COVID was about 1 in 8,000. So nothing to play with, but I I wear that to make older people, people at risk, feel comfortable. You can't always tell if a young person's at risk if they're diabetic or something like that. For you as the healthy person, um, I pretty much would agree with your analysis. And this, again, gets into politicized science. There's very little science that indicates that masks work at some high, remarkable level. I think we can say that. This Danish study that came out recently found – There was, I'll just say it bluntly, there was no statistically significant effect of masking, for you at least. Meaning that if you put on a mask, you are not, there's no trackable mathematical evidence that that reduces how likely you are to get sick. Um, As I recall, 2% of people that didn't wear masks at all got sick during the study period, and 1.75% of those who did wear a mask every day got sick. So, I mean, again, I, I think it, that indicates I mean, that's a full you know, quarter percentage difference, but it didn't reach significance. And the people who wore masks had to buy the masks and clean the masks. And so on. I mean, it, it's a slight positive effect. The issue with masking, though, is that masks have become kind of a talisman for the political left. So when I talk to friends about something that I, again, I consider pretty obvious, which is that the giant George Floyd protests helped spread covid. One of the responses is, well, but those people were good liberals, so they were masked up. And I I think that's the level of kind of incomprehension here. Like, if you are at a riot with 500,000 people and you're fighting a squad of 20,000 cops in the full Darth Vader riot gear, that's not a safe thing because you have a mask on. Like, you're still 90% as likely to get COVID, and you could get your head knocked down with a brick. So, that idea of the mask is the totem, it's the symbol, it's what's making me safe, I, I really think is pretty silly. But you're seeing that a lot now. When you watch like CNN, people have masks on on the air before they go to the actual anchor desk. Like, is that necessary? Probably not.
2: Yeah. Uh, hold on to that thought. This is Tom Donson with uh, Dr. Will Riley here on the Donson Files and the Basswood News Radio Network.
1: Greetings and great day, everyone. I am Elder Janelle Strickland, host of the Life Cafe radio broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network.
4: Join Barry Barnes for Locker Talk on the Bachelor Pad Network as he presents NFL news and evaluates players, Fridays at 9 a.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com.
2: Welcome back. This is Tom Donaldson, Donaldson files with a special guest, Dr. Will Riley. This is part of a series we're going to be doing through the end of the year, dealing with Scientific class, are we witnessing the politicalization of science and what's the impact going to be? By the way, just a quick note here, ladies and gentlemen, there'll be some changes on the Bassin News Radio Network and on this show, which will include a new call in number, and uh, we've got a new website that's going to be coming up shortly. Uh, So, this we're going to, so it's going to be really great. We're going to have some really good changes. You're going to level. you're going to have to go under Donaldson Files on Twitter at the Donaldson Files Parlor, Parlor.com for more information dealing with the changes coming up, including the call in number. But tonight, the call in number is 646 929 0130. 646 0130. If you want to call in, comment, or just simply say, the host, you're the greatest. Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I mean, okay. I guess the yeah. The, the thing with the mask to me is like I say. I got I got the same interpretation. It, it, you know, you could get a slight benefit, but you know, it, and it, and I, and the way I've always kind of viewed it, because there's hundreds of studies out there, and even if you look at the CDC's own guidelines for, you know March of 2020, you know, they were cautious on this idea of masks and when it's appropriate. And most of them basically say. You know, you know the one group of people, as you say, they they encourage is you, if you're elderly, if you got immunocompromised, you might want to wear a mask to protect yourself. Uh, and certainly, I'm like I'm I'm with you. Uh, you know, I'm I'm 60. I'm I'm in my <clears throat> mid 60s, so I'm at that point where maybe I should be wearing a mask. But I I view myself as relatively healthy. Uh, I swim. You know, work out every day. Yeah, and I. And so I don't, but yet, you know, I do wear a mask, you know, And again, to make everybody else around me feel comfortable. And maybe if I can reduce my reduce my chance of getting the virus, my one percent is better than not getting the virus. I mean, who wants to get sick, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that that's I think that's pretty much accurate. It, it, like I said, it sounds sounds like we pretty much agree on masks. Like, they, of course, they do. Something you know, not not very much. The real issue with masks. So the thing I keep returning to with masks is this blind politicized belief that this is the thing that shows you have virtue. So one of the things with the science around COVID nineteen is that it's actually pretty contradictory, and this is really common with high level science. So we, it's not like there's a situation where we've been consistently told to wear non medical masks and like the conservatives are refusing. If you remember the start of COVID-19, Fauci and Burks and these other doctors came out and said don't wear a mask. There's very little evidence they do much. They can exacerbate conditions like asthma and we need them for healthcare workers. Like all of that stuff is still true. <laughs> the the whole thing with masking, democratic candidates began to use them as a symbol that they cared during the election season. If you remember Biden, Trump began holding these large rallies, and yeah. Biden responded by holding events where he actually had a pretty decent number of people, but they were sitting in these painted circles 12 feet apart, yeah. you know, it's to show, like, I'm the COVID-aware candidate. And as this went on, and as masks became the excuse for the riots being okay, the mask became kind of a symbol, like, if you're outside without a mask, you want people to die. And the reality is that, like that lockdown paper I did for you guys, which is... I mean, from the consideration I'm getting, it's a journal-level article. I think it's pretty solid. We both chipped in some data there. But what that actually finds is that there's very little difference between lockdown areas and areas where people do what you could call well-done social distancing, which actually is a thing. I mean, you give people four or five feet, you wash your hands, shower, you're in clean clothes, you have separate exits and entrances to buildings. If you do all that as versus locking down, there's not any difference in the first place in death rates because people spend more time in unhealthy, dusty environments and so on during lockdowns. Um, The masks on top of well-done social distancing don't seem to do all that much. But what they do is provide, the mask is a symbol of visible public virtue sort of. Like no one can tell how clean you are. No one can tell whether you went online and bought a $30 COVID test this morning, so you know you're not any risk to anyone. No one can tell whether you've had COVID before, so by definition, you're no risk to anyone. But they can see that you're wearing a mask.
2: Yeah, you know, and maybe on the reverse side, you know, a lot of my side is like they don't wear the mask. It's like a symbol of I'm not going to be oppressed. And to me, it's like, okay, you know, you may have a scientific reason not to wear a mask, but let's not overdo it. You know, Somehow or another – you know, wearing a mask doesn't mean you're going to lose your freedom or your identity. <laughs> uh, if it's, you know, if, I mean, there are far worse things than fight liberty, to have a battle of liberty and going up San Juan Hill than that. But here's, yeah, you know, but here's the thing with the state. I mean, here, uh, this is the thing with the saints because one of the most interesting stories was John Andonis, who as an epidemiologist, a press. Um, He's a professor of medicine at Stanford University. He is an epidemiologist. Well, he asked certain questions. He said, wait a minute, guys. Before we shut everything down, let's find out what we have. And let's see what the infection rate truly is and what we truly have before we shut everything down. And he kind of went against the grain of shutting everything down. And he was viciously attacked. Mm hmm. Now that's just by public officials, but by his own scientists, and so was Scott Atlas uh, the same way when he joined the Trump administration. And the irony that comes into play here is he proved to be correct on the infection fatality rate.
3: Yeah, that's no, Ianita's and those guys like Bhattacharya, I will say, like some of their lower end predictions, like ten thousand. I mean, you and I both know as data yeah. guys that turned out yeah. to be pretty wrong. But the reason for that, though, is a technical reason, which is that COVID is more infectious than people thought. Like John Ioannidis and all those Stanford guys were absolutely correct that the IFR, the infection fatality rate for COVID, seems to be about 0.24. The CDC came out in July, I believe, and said it was 0.26. They've since adjusted that a little higher. It got close to 0.6. At one point, it's now 0.4 or something like that. But essentially, those doctors that came out when people were saying, like, Pueyo, um, the tech exec famously claimed 10 million people were going to die, those people that came out and said, no, that's not true, and here's why, are to some extent heroes. And, yeah, they were ruthlessly attacked. Certainly anyone that went into politics, especially on the Republican side on the basis of that, worked for a political administration was attacked. Um, so, again, there, there are a lot of points here that we're making that are actually pretty deep. Like, science isn't one thing. Science is a method. Yeah. So there are almost invariably going to be studies on either side of a scientific question. And both sides now have now begun politicizing science. And unless you're talking about evolution or something, I think the left is a lot more ruthless about this and a lot more poorly educated about this. And that's why you saw the attacks on Ian um, One thing that is funny is kind of a last line for me is that people who say the right thing, which is kind of let's give the government more power, let's trust our overlords, they are forgiven any number of examples of being wildly wrong. So like Neil Ferguson, the left-wing British researcher who initially projected the COVID fatality rates, is one of the most consistently dramatically wrong people in science. I mean, this is a guy, if you remember this, that predicted there'd be 2.2 million dead Americans by August. I mean, we're at 267,000, and I mean, most of those are cases with multiple pre-existing conditions. So this guy was wrong by a factor of 10, by 1,000 percent, and as I understand, he still has his job, at least the 10-year job at a university. Yeah, I mean,
2: and here's the th- Yeah, the other thing that comes into play here is, is because here's the thing that always bothered me is not that this was a serious virus. Because, uh, and if you even go back to the CDC number, because I know their 0.4 was based on, you know, the original 0.25 was based on if you had asymptomatic. And if you look at the most recent study where they were looking at, you know, the study that they just came out with, you know, it would be seven to eight infections. Uh, for everyone that's confirmed, we probably have seven to eight. And if you look at those numbers again, it still goes out to about 0.6. 0.25 to, 0.7 to 0.3. It's yep.
4: uh,
2: so, and and, it, and to me, the, it, it comes from a public policy point of view. And this is the problem that I've had in all of this: is that uh, at the very beginning, you know, Tony Foster, for example, originally stated 0.1 to 1%, but when he went to Congress, he talked to the 1% number almost totality. Mm-hmm. Then he upped those numbers a little bit later. And again, if you look at those numbers, they were very similar to what Neil Ferguson was talking about, you know, millions of people dead. But the reality was he was, you know, the, we, and we based our policy on that. And I guess the question that comes into play is if the average American were told in April or May, look, here's, the, here's your risk. If you do this, you reduce your risk. If you're in this group, you reduce your risk. But people are going to die. People are going to get sick. Uh, this is a unique virus. And... We'll do the best we can to protect people, but here's the cost if you do the complete, if we shut everything down. We never truly flesh out. And this is the other aspect that comes into play here, you know, the trade-offs.
3: Yep. Yeah, no, that that is correct. I mean, so, yeah, there's a lot there. I mean, the president – Sorry, I didn't catch my thought there. Yeah, the the presentation of COVID-19 that was used when doctors came into the halls of Congress or made pitches to even a GOP president originally or tried to get their articles published was, this could be doomsday. So, I mean, we all saw Ferguson's projection in a scenario where we did, um, essentially what we did, which is called mitigation. I believe he projected that 1.1 to 1.5 million people would die by August, might have been September. You saw Pueyo, who's one of the big bosses in tech. His projections went up to $10 because he assumed an IFR of something like 3%. I don't know why. And then he said that, of course, the hospitals would start filling up, so you'd have these squalid field hospitals with people dying and so on. And in reality, yeah, if you go back to Ianita's Bhattacharya, there have been reasonable projections of IFR through all this. I, I personally think that the response to COVID will be remembered as one of the greatest human hysterias. Um, if you look at what actually happened, like the elephant in the room is that a bunch of major countries like Sweden, Belarus, some of the Asian islands never shut down anything at all. And they're all doing better than the countries that impose these brutal lockdowns in Sweden right now. They're at six thousand six hundred eighty three people dead. you know, average age eighty two. And that's unfortunate and tragic, but Sweden is a country as a California that has between 12 and 15 million people. So it, it's hard not to think that that's not going to be considered a better approach when generals and business people are looking at this down the road. But, yeah, we saw these high figures early on. We panicked. We shut down. And because it was the big players like Britain and the USA doing this originally, a lot of other countries followed along.
2: Well, here's the thing. The other thing comes play to play towards us. Uh... And this is a point I want to kind of also really delve into is, is okay, for example, the Danish Danish mass study, one of the – this was a thing. This was a study that was actually completed in August, if I remember correctly, or at the end of July. And it was a Mm -hmm. study in which you could have read what the criteria was. They had the criteria listed right out in front of everybody. Here's what we're looking at, and so, it, which to me was unusual for a scientific study, where you're actually telling everybody, here's your endpoints, here's what we're looking at, and we'll see whether or not what we end up with. And one of the comments was when this, you know, somebody asked, a well, winch your study come out?" And the, the comment of one of the authors was, "When somebody has the guts to publish the study." And
3: yeah, and, that and go ahead. No, I, yeah, I think that's, that's pretty obviously correct. Um, you, you see this trend quite a lot, by the way, in scientific research to a much greater extent than most people suspect is the case. So I recently, I follow Lee Jussum, who's the head of the Rutgers Psychology Department, if I have that correct, on Twitter. And okay. he recently posted this incredible graphic. It was these are all the studies that find that new prescription drugs work. And it was about 150 studies that had been published in top journals like the Lancet, the New England Journal of Medicine. They were all high lit and green. And obviously, I mean, many people that work in this field are going to have taken some money from the drug companies. Um, those are the people that are advertising in some of the better medical journals and magazines, if we're being blunt. So you had this huge block of studies. And then uh, Jossam and a colleague put up a second graphic that said, well, here are the studies showing that these drugs don't work. That never saw the light of day anywhere, and it was an equally large graphic. It was, you know, 150, 200 studies highlighted in red. So if you look through the medical press at top levels, you would think that we're discovering miracle drugs every week. And if you're worried about your, you know, heart or lungs or your hairline or your penis, it might be a good idea to go out and you know take some of these pills. But the reality is that a lot of these drugs seem to work sporadically at best, and what we're seeing are the trials where they do work out. It's the same thing with climate change, by the way.
2: Um, The climate change is
3: happening. Yeah,
2: yeah. hold on to that thought right there. This is Tom Donaldson here on the Donaldson Files and on the Bachelor News Radio Network.
8: You might know me, I'm 50 Cent. You may follow my tweets, my Facebook friends. Odds are a few in six degrees separate us. We're that close. What's crazy is one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. These are your co-workers, your neighbors, your friends. Hunger's too close for us to ignore. So visit feedingamerica.org hunger and find your local food bank to see how you can make a difference. From one close friend to another, let's do this. I'm 50 Cent and together we
4: are Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council.
2: And don't forget, like I say, your local charities, it's the Christmas time of season. So uh, I myself, I have a health clinic that I give every year generously. uh, They provide a a gap staff for a lot of – and so, you know, and so find yourself a charity. Find yourself something to give, to help. It's the Christmas season coming into play. All right. Let's go back to – okay, let's kind of talk about climate change. I know we're going to get in that discussion next week, but I want to – because this is to me, it's even worse in this regard, is a lot of the science is not being published, or if it's published, it's going to be published in different journals that very few people read, or the people like Judith Curry basically have you know have been ostracized to a point where're not their views as solid as their data has proven to be is not hitting the public, and we're basing government policy, the Green New Deal, on these worst-case scenarios, mm-hmm. which, and again, and and, and and we're talking billions of dollars are spent by the government to do this research, and the question is, is this research being designed to support a specific policy, and is it truly independent? Or has government funding of of the science corrupted it.
3: Yeah. So there's, there's a lot there. There's a very famous book by Thomas Sowell called the vision of the anointed, the great economist Thomas Sowell. And what Thomas Sowell says is that if you look at the leadership class of the United States, it has certain characteristics. Like it's very coastal. It's very upper class. There aren't a lot of, you know, the the elite tradesmen remaining. It's concentrated in a few cities, uh, New York, DC, My massive hometown of Chicago on the Inland Seas is probably the smallest of them. Um, You know, it's educated in a specific 20 or 30 institutions. Again, Notre Dame or Michigan or Illinois might crack that list, but they're mostly Ivies. And this group shares an attitude that they are the ones that should lead. They are the enlightened that have been trained to run the country, and other people should sort of step out of the way and let them do so. And the book is actually very entertaining because you know, Soul discusses at length the conflict between this group and, you know, other powerful elites that are also dead serious. The black elite, kind of the heartland elite I'm here in horse racing country in Kentucky, you know, regional elites based out of cities like Cincinnati, blah, blah, blah. But what Soul says in this book is that certain ideas which forward the cause of this elite, like the idea that we should set back and let the government take care of us, are going to be very likely praised in kind of the journals of record, the Lancet on the medical side, the New York Times, the Washington Post. If you say these things, you are going to be applauded and backslapped. Whereas if you're a member of one of the regional elites, as I suppose I am, or something like the religious elite, the Catholic Church has taken a beating lately. If If you come from the world of industry, as I believe you may have, What you say may be grounded in data, but it's going to be treated very skeptically. Uh, The idea that private charity does a better job providing for people than the government is a classic example of this you've probably read about. So where I'm going with all this yap is that in the case of COVID – The two positions were, one, kind of the anointed position, and two, just the everyday citizen's position. The anointed position is we're listening to doctors from Oxford and Cambridge, and yeah, they're likely to be wrong. Ninety percent of medical studies are wrong, but they're more likely to be right than anybody else. So all these peasants need to just shut up, put their mask on, shutter their business, and go home. And in response to that, you had a bunch of scientists from the business world, which is my background, if you look at my papers, um, immigrants like Bhattacharya, you know, people that were in non-traditional colleges. You had some pieces from the for-profit college sector who were saying, well, just empirically looking at the mathematics here, we might not have, you know, the same flashy degrees. But what you're saying doesn't seem to make any sense. I mean, if the COVID IFR is 0.26 and we lose 300,000 people this year, that's a tragedy. But three to four million people just die every year. That doesn't necessarily justify locking down the economy. This is, in fact, specifically what Sweden and Belarus, Jordan, and a number of other countries decided. So that's been reacted to very harshly. And less sentence, But there, there definitely is, you know, not a mafia or anything like that. It's not dramatic. But in science, there very definitely is an understanding that if your paper says certain things, it probably won't be published. Um, if you find that the biggest predictor of how people do in school is racism – there's really one famous paper that I've ever found that presents a copy called stereotype, concept called stereotype threat – that will be remembered for 30 years. If you find instead that what predicts how people do in school is IQ or study time or something like that, that will be treated – people will discuss it in low voices and so on, and people will sort of mention that everyone knows that – But that's not going to make you famous. That's not going to make your career because that doesn't contribute to this prevailing vision that we can change the world.
2: Well, let me add to follow-up on that point right there you just made because because obviously in the academic world, you know, getting published is part of the game. But if you have that position where it's almost like a reinforcing principle where if you want to get published or get published in a certain journal, like Lancet, you know, if you go against the grain, for what the grain is, the chance of you getting published is going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot slimmer. You know, I think of, again, I'll go back to the climate debate where you look at somebody like Judith Curry, who is a top scientist, and she has a far harder time to get published than somebody like Michael Mann of Penn State, who, in my view, is an inferior scientist to her. Yep. But
3: he's the yeah, expert. As a methodologist,
2: I agree with that. By the way, yeah, and the, and she's the one ostracized, even though that indeed a lot of what she has written is valid, and she's asked all the same questions that, you know, that let's say were asked the beginning, namely, you know, before we go shutting down totally an economy or totally have economic restrictions, we better understand the risk versus benefit. Much in the same way with the Green New Deal. And yeah. Here's the question I, I'm going to. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the right. throw back to you because you've been Because contra- you've stated on crime stats, and you've stated on let's say, race. And uh, and here's, here's a thing that got from uh, Mike Mark Perry, who does a, you know, camp, carpe DM. Point that you made. Where, okay, you look at, for example, m- Medium annual earnings for full time year round black. African ancestry group. If you're from Guyana, you're going to earn close to sixty-nine by sixty-nine thousand dollars a year. That's going to be twenty. That's going to be about a third more than what the average black in the United States is going to earn. Uh, the yep. British West Indies is sixty-four thousand. Now they use a general term, African. I have no idea what that would be is forty eight you know
1: forty nine okay. thousand you get
2: the point you get the point you you could literally go through a list here and say, you know what do they you know what's going on here uh because if racism is the ultimate impediment to move up the economic ladder, why did they do it? your thoughts
3: yeah i mean i I think that So again, a a wide range of conversation, which is great. But I mean, so certain with the climate change stuff and getting into your question, just one note here, when people say only 5% of published articles, that's what it was last year, deny the conventional wisdom on climate change. One thing you'd have to ask there is, can you get an article published if you deny the conventional wisdom on climate change? You know, What what are the there are only about four climatology journals that are taken seriously to the point where I've even heard of them. And I'm a quantitative scientist. I mean, so what are what are the political positions of the editors of those four journals? And because of this kind of thing, what sometimes is called, you know, clicking regional mafias in the sciences, a lot of the best critiques of a particular science actually come in book form. So, I mean, people have been writing about climate change and about the problems with those journals for a while. I mean, there's a great book, Apocalypse Never, that just came out by an executive and scientist that's discussed this stuff at the level of the UN. There's a book, Apocalypse Not, about 15 years ago. Um, climate and Fear just came out. So it's the same thing in any of these areas. I mean, like, if you're in sociology, you're going to be rewarded – if you find extreme forms of racism that give sociologists and social workers something to fight against. Right. I mean, so, you know, there's a, there's a famous paper in that came out in about 2000 by a woman named Deva Prager, Deva, yeah, Deva Prager, P-R-A-G-E-R. And what she found was that there was a fair amount of racism in hiring. I think you were 17% less likely to get a call back if you were black and you were an applicant. But I looked at this And I noticed that she only looked at applicants for jobs that were, it's pretty long, so I'll try to go through it, but like entry-level, non-affirmative action in the private sector with white-owned companies in the city of Milwaukee in 1998. Like it was just incredibly pow, 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 this is what I'm looking at. And a lot of people have pointed out, coming from the outside in kind of quantitative political science or military science, You'd find the exact opposite result if you looked at 100 other fields. Like if you looked at academia where I work, you'd have an enormous advantage if you were a well-qualified young brother applying. Like everybody knows that. So similarly, like when you're talking about this, this data indicates that there is a broad range of incomes and success levels within racial groups. This is one of those things that would be hard to get published but that everybody kind of knows. So you're given the black figures, and it sounds like the individual income figures. Yeah. But yeah, uh, Yeah. Nigerians, Guyanese-Americans who can be black or Indian, interestingly, I don't know what the background of that country is. But South African-Americans who can be black or white, but just blah, 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 Ghanaians. There are a whole bunch of mostly black groups that average $70,000 or so per year per person. And this gets even more dramatic if you add in you know, Indian drobins who are basically black but also obviously of Asiatic heritage. So the question would be if you see a jet black dude who's from Nigeria or India but who just looks like a black guy or dark-skinned Latino guy and you're a racist, why would you treat that person any better than a black American? And the answer is you wouldn't. You'd probably treat them worse. There'd be less of a shared military bond or something there. Well, why is that person worth $100,000 per year then? And the answer is there has to be, there has to be something other than racism that's at play. And for you or me or for business people, housewives, normal people, it's not hard to admit that. But for a lot of these journal types and a lot of people that read these journals, it is hard.
2: Well, okay, again, let me, before, okay, before we take a quick break, I'm going to put a, I'm going to okay, let's go back to the Milwaukee study. And, you know, after the break, and want you to kind of give you the answer, but is there a difference between, let's say, as you stated, a black, a young black would have a easier time if he has the PhD is qualified to get in the academic setting where you may have much more recruitment of, of minorities versus a privately run company with a white-owned business owner. You know, we'll come back to that question uh, when we get back. This is Tom Donaldson um, here on the Donaldson Files with Will Riley on the Bachelors Radio Network and the Donaldson Files.
6: This is Dr. Larry Fidoa, host of The Dr. Larry Show on the Bachelor News Radio Network, inviting you to listen live every Wednesday evening from 7 to
7: 8 p.m. Eastern Time at blogtalkradio.com and the podcast every Monday through Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time at the thebachelornews.airtime.pro. I am called
6: the philosopher of current events, an independent, open-minded, conservative, with my own ideas. If you are interested in advertising or having your own show,
2: email us at labachelor40 at gmail.com. And don't forget, ladies and gentlemen, uh, you can call in today, 646-929-0130. And stay, pay attention to at Donaldson Files on Twitter, at Parlor, uh, dot com or the Donaldson files.com for some special announcements coming up, dealing with the, the bachelor news radio network and the Donaldson files, including a new call in number. So, you know, just, you know, keep an eye on ear and because we got a new website. We're going to have a new website, everything, new calling numbers. So it's going to be fantastic. You're going to love this. We're taking this network to even a bigger level than what we have. And trust me, we have seen leaps and bounds with this show and other shows on the Bass News Radio Network. Okay, I'm going to put the challenge to you. If okay, you uh-huh. you say that okay, this was this is a study limited to let's say Milwaukee. You know, private company run by white, and and then you made the observation. Okay, at a you know at a university uh, on a university academic setting, you know, a. Black, well-qualified, would we have a leg up in that setting. But could that – I'm going to say to you – my response to you might be, look, the white-owned business you know, has their own state, whereas, okay, in the academic city, they aggressively look for minorities and have diversity as part of their goal, whereas the white business owner may not have that. Does that indicate there will be more racism if they're not – If they don't have, let's say, that search for diversity among that white business versus the academic study.
3: Well, maybe. But I mean, 21% of businesses are owned by Asians or blacks before you even get into Jewish Americans. I mean, I suppose we would probably be more likely to hire a well-brimmed young black guy. I mean, to me, first of all, it's not that hard to get a job. I'm not going to go into some Republican rant here, but in college, I mean, it was pretty much always possible to get a job in construction, call center sales, waiting tables, a couple other things by looking for a day. That was true for my black, white, Native American, whatever buddies. But I don't think anyone denies that there is regional or situational racism, i.e., if you're a white guy and you've worked your entire life to get a Ph.D., But you want to teach in the Ivy League, for example, or in that growing HBCU sector where I am or something like that, you had better be prepared to deal with a lot of diversity and understand that you're going to be at a disadvantage relative to a black guy. Similarly, if you're a black guy and you're applying in Milwaukee in the late 90s in the bar and nightclub sector, I mean, you should be prepared for the idea that you might be at a disadvantage 10 12% relative to a white guy. But I guess the the reason I brought up that study was that depending on what you decide to look at, without cheating at all, without disgracing yourself as an academic at all, you can get pretty much whatever result you want. So if I, as a right-leaning social scientist, decided to show that affirmative action outweighs racism, all I would have to do is look at government jobs or jobs with corporations whose bosses identify themselves as liberal. It would be fairly easy to find this out by voting records or your sole proprietor or you identify with your business. Um, On the other hand, if someone wanted to find out that racism outweighs affirmative action, all they'd have to do is look in the, you know, non-equal opportunity employer privately owned business sector. It would be incredibly easy to get a better business bureau guide and come to either result. So that's kind of the point. Like when people say, you know, we found significant evidence of racism the first question would be, where did you find significant evidence of racism? Because if you found it in the hiring process at top ten universities, that would be really shocking. That's a that's a world-changing finding. If you found it in, you know, privately owned white nightclubs in Milwaukee, or you found reverse racism in black nightclubs, that's not really telling anyone anything. And you need to be you need to very honestly clarify what you looked at in what's called the methodology section of that study. So it's it's the same thing with a lot of this climate change stuff. Like, are you looking at a specific body of water or a specific, you know, formation of glaciation, uh, ice sheet, as it's called, in terms of the shrinking or the growing of this thing? Because globally, I mean, we we know the world has gotten about a half a degree warmer, but that's it. I mean, there, there aren't any serious studies tying increased hurricanes, for example, to climate change. But if you want to find a particular result, i.e. Uh, one of the COVID studies that comes to mind, it was Chinese, I forget the author, but uh, they found that the COVID IFR was almost 4%. What I noticed later as I read through the method study was that the population they looked at was Chinese 80-year-olds. So depending on where you do your research, you can find almost anything. I'm rambling a little bit. That's a key point to take away. If your pool of patients is all 85, you're going to find that COVID-19 is very deadly indeed.
2: Yeah, okay. Here's, let's, you know, let me answer this quick question. Is this Because there's also a review process. Yeah. And should, and somewhere along the line, there's a reviewer's job is to look at the methodology and say, okay, here's this methodology. Uh, you know, does it, you know, is this, you know, bringing up the same points you just brought up. You know, this is worthy of being published in the journal, or this may not be worthy, or hey, we got these questions. We're going to ask a researcher to clarify before we publish. Uh, you know, somewhere along the line for me, uh, certainly in climatology in particular, you know, that process is almost like a, you know, if you're on my side, I'll pass on to you methodology be damned. Are we seeing, you know, the review process itself decline? Well, I, I don't know if
3: we're seeing it decline. It's sort of, but I, I don't know if that's a substantial decline I think this is a problem we've been griping about in academia When I use the term mafia and so on for 20, 30 years um, So there, there are a couple of things that are worth noting there You're absolutely right that in a solid, peer-reviewed journal situation You're going to go through some scrutiny um, I do a lot of public intellectual writing But I've also published pieces in the National Association of Scholars Journal uh, Journal of Contemporary Applied Sciences I mean, pretty, pretty serious locations that does happen but it, it's worth noting a couple things here. I mean, first of all, not all journals are reputable. I mean, if we're talking about you want to get a solid, a, a widely read sort of second tier piece out there, I mean, there are journals that, will pay, that you can pay to publish your work. Um, it won't get quite the same number of eyes, but a lot of that stuff is public access. So you can post it up on the Internet. You can post links to your social media. Um, and a number, number of people do that. It's not entirely an unreputable thing to do at this point. There also are sites like Medium now that give the impression of you having been prominently published when, in fact, that's just you writing. Um, That's where the Pueo piece actually originally dropped before someone published it. So when you see – another category would be what are called preprints. I mean, there are now sites like GitHub. I think ArcDigi does some of this, where you can upload a piece that's sort of deemed worthy and, you know, a 20-minute scan by an editor – before the piece is published. And then you can link to that and refer to it as, you know, the widely read preprint. So a lot of this stuff about COVID-19 hasn't actually been fully peer-reviewed yet. I mean, that's a process that well, takes three or four months.
2: Let me ask a quick question, Father. okay what you just stated, because I see this quite a bit. You know, because like I guess I literally have, I mean, I have two files in my thing that I keep. I have one for climate change. I have one for health care. And I literally got hundreds of <laughs> Articles and a lot of them are what I call you, what you just said, the pre published. Yeah, it seems to me that there's an aspect that I do like about the pre published in the sense that it's there, you can look at it, uh, your people can comment, and they can look at the methodology, and you can almost get an instant feedback to say whether or not you're on the right path, or you may have to go back and redo something. You know, that would be my view of that because I see that quite a bit. What's your
3: I mean, I love preprints. And I, I also love the fact that some of the book publishers like Regnery on the right or Third World Press on the left are now starting to take on these manuscripts. Like if you look at this wasn't with either one of those, but if you look at Cynical Theories by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, I mean it would have been a you know damn hard grind to get that published additional philosophy publisher. But they went with a book publisher. They published what's basically an academic book, and it's like number three in the country right now. So I like it that there are more forums for this information to get out. But it's also important – you and I are both pretty skilled scrutinizers of data. It's important for ordinary taxpayers, when they look through the newspaper, to realize certain things. Like this may not even have published in a journal these days. I mean it might have been published in an anthology by some book publisher. It might have – been a popular preprint it might have come out on medium look at what's being cited and even if it was published in a journal remember that you can pay the average journal 100 bucks to publish your piece i mean the people i just mentioned Lindsay and pluck rose um published something like 11 fake papers with the top journals in sociology and ethics studies yeah. that were just nonsense like one was an analysis of quote-unquote out of shape bodybuilding um you know you oh, yeah. be a fat bodybuilding champion one was just a chapter of the book, Mein Kampf. One was a oh, question yeah, remember, about whether the yeah, doggy-style position is yeah, – Yeah, I remember go, that go
2: study. Yeah. yeah, I remember that because there was something like they had <laughs> sent out a bunch of them, and about a third had already been accepted. Before they, yeah, in the top journals. In the top journals before they said, all right, by the way <laughs> – and the thing is <laughs> – so that's why I talk about the review process because they they had one – Scientists who agreed to have his name put, but all the other co-authors of these studies were fake. Their organizations were faked. and you would think that somebody would have called up and say, uh, "You know, Bodybuilder Association University, uh, uh, are you for real?" <laughs> I mean, they didn't even do that.
3: Yeah, it was like the they. There were just ridiculous ridiculous names used. I mean, like, yeah, one was like the National Association of Fat Bodybuilders. I mean, the most famous paper, the, the way I present it when I describe it to friends is, is the doggy position not feminist for animals? But what they're essentially doing is looking at dog parts and seeing which breeds of dogs are more likely to hump one another and analogizing this to quote-unquote feminist rape culture. I mean, and this – they just made all the data up, of course, but, I mean, this was published in, like, a top five journal of sexuality. It won some kind of award. It was like the paper of the year for that entire journal. So, I mean, just, again, keep all this in mind when you see someone say, well, what have you ever published in sociology? Like, the, the response to that is, you know, the people that were talking about whether dog sex is feminist published in sociology, you know? The the question is how good the methods are in an article, basically. That that's really what it comes down to, how good the methods are in an article. The rest of it, you know
2: yeah. Well, you know a lot of things thing. go into that. Yeah, I mean, here's the, I'm gonna give you a couple quick examples. I mean, first of all, the study you did on the lock the two studies you did on lockdown was a follow up to a study you already done. But to me when I what I one of the things I will look at I would say, you know, is this idea way out there? Or is this an outlier, or maybe we're discovering new, or have there been other studies out there? And certainly in your case on the lockdown, there have been other studies that confirm what you stated. And I can remember years yep. ago, I did, a, I did one on illegal citizen voting. And I can always remember because I'm a guy who's been, done politics for 50 years, and I've run political campaigns in fifty, in about 25 states. And I remember mm-hmm. there was an old Dominion study using different methodology. And their numbers and my numbers were not that far off. And I remember a gentleman who's written books on fraud, election fraud, you know, you know, you know, used my, you know, you know, used mine as reference. I called him up. You know, like I've gotten friends with the guys. I'm just curious. You know, my methodology was very simple. I simply asked voters if they were legal. And (laughs) and he said, (laughs) and he said to me, he said, well, you know, in this market, and this what you're doing is about as good as anything else I've seen, one way or the other. (laughs) <laughs> but it it's but it you know, but the thing is, I had other scientists basically at least I could sit back and say, well this guy and this guy and this guy has verified my data in their own study, so I'm not out there on left field, and that's you know the one thing I always kind of looked at, you know when I see okay, your research, I mean, you're not the only one who's discovered lockdown. You know, the impact of lockdown, but you've done three studies and there's been, there have been others out there pretty much following up on the same line as far as results go. Now, whether methodology, I'm not certain of, but certainly, and that's, you know, that's, that's always been one of my views, Uh, you know. You know, what else has been set out there?
3: Yeah, I think I think that there are a lot of ways, and we're, we're unpacking a lot of them, but there are a lot of ways to look at the validity of a study. I mean, the first is what you call facial validity, really, for me. Like, does it seem to make sense? Like, does it make sense that locking down would cause dramatic increases in unemployment? I think unless you're an idiot, unless you're being intentionally delusional, the answer is yeah. Like, if you shut down... 35% of the economy, more people are going to be out of work, especially young men. So, I mean, does it make sense? Um, is it replicable? This is, this is a big problem, actually, in uh, social science right now. When you look at this stuff that's dealing with race, for example, like someone will find that having a racist teacher correlates statistically significantly with black kids doing badly, of which, you know, there's a 50% chance in a classroom over a certain size of- A block of kids are going to do badly. One of two races is going to do worse or something like that. Um, But people that try to find this again don't. That particular study has not been replicated especially well. So, I mean, does this make sense? Has it been replicated? Has it been done again? Are there other people finding the same thing? And, again, the issue with a lot of this isn't that there's not plenty of work on both sides. If you look at Thomas Sowell and Glenn Lowry and some of the people I work with on uh, the 1776 project, there's a ton of work showing that most of the problems for blacks or poor whites or whatever in America aren't due to conflict between those groups. That's actually the majority position in the sciences where you get into debates about IQ and so on. But it really almost doesn't matter if no one will present that in the popular press. So there are a lot of different things. There are ways to show that a study is good. And then when you're actually looking at the science and you realize that there are good studies on both sides, what determines whether something becomes famous that makes that yeah. researcher's career? That's a tough question. Well, here's
2: a, you know, before we're running out of time, but I guess maybe to me, the question I would think about is trade-offs. Now, you know, Tom Sol talks about trade-offs. Oh yeah. And if this was something, you know, that was missing, has been missing in the COVID debate all along is what's the trade-off? Okay. You On one side of the equation, the way I kind of put it is, you know, if two to three out of a thousand people will die from COVID versus one of a thousand from the flu over the past decade, do we? What's the benefit to save that extra two per thousand lives? And what are we giving up? And and I think that that to me is another aspect of science, namely, what's your trade-off? And that's certainly something that's rarely discussed. I'll give you a quick thirty seconds to respond, and then we're going to have to kind of wrap everything up. But
3: yeah, no, Sol, obviously, the great economist, very famously said there are no solutions when it comes to serious adult business and military decisions. There are only trade-offs. We often tend to forget that. Cowardly politicians very much do. In the case of COVID, if three million people die every year, four million people die every year, does it make sense to shut down society to prevent a nine percent increase in the death rate? Uh, I don't think so.
2: Here, uh, did you know Walter Williams? Because I know he just passed away today, the the economist from George Mason.
3: um We exchanged some emails. We hadn't personally met. I had heard that and hoped it wasn't true. I got a text about it uh, from a student asking, "Did this yeah. happen?" But you know, R.I.P. Uh, the great man. If he unfortunately is no longer with us.
2: Yeah. Well, he. That's well, my understanding. He's passed away because I saw this on the uh, you know, light. Like, uh, Steve Hayward uh, on Powerline uh, gave a eulogy, so it must be true. <laughs> well, listen, thank you very much yeah. for being on the show. I appreciate it. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, next week we're going to have a follow-up with other individuals. You know, are the, uh, is science being flow sized What's happening with the scientific class? And what's its impact? Uh, so next week, and don't forget, stay tuned for announcements on uh, changes dealing with the network, including new call in number. So this is Tom Donaldson saying good night. Good night, Tom.
7: Hey, we want to welcome everyone to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network. We're glad that you have taken the time to join us uh, this afternoon for another edition of You and the Law. And uh, if you're a first-time listener, we want to welcome you to You and the Law. But if you're a, uh, a law VIP listener of You and the Law, we, we want to welcome you uh, you back as well. So we've got a, an exciting show uh for our listeners, uh, this afternoon, uh, we're going to have on a, um, uh, an Oklahoma uh, police officer who, um, responded to a house fire and turned out to be that he was responding to a house fire at his home. So we're going to be, um, talking with that police officer here in just a little bit, but, uh, we want to remind our listeners that the calling number to the show is, um, 646 130 that's six four 929 130 and uh, please join please follow us on our uh, social media page you can follow us on Facebook at you the law you can follow us on Instagram that's you underscore in the law you can follow us on Twitter that's at you the law one on Twitter at you the law one on Twitter and we're super excited to announce that we have a, uh, a new website where our listeners can go and listen to our show and all the other shows that's on the Bachelor News Radio Network, and that uh, website is uh, the Bachelor News Radio Network com. That's the Bachelor News Radio Network com. So go up and click on the tab where it says "You In the Law." You can uh, listen to. Uh, previous uh, episodes of you and the law and uh, that we're excited about it so there's a lot of great things that's happening on the bachelor news radio network and uh, some some new exciting things that to happen over the next uh, couple of weeks before the holiday season so just stay tuned for all those things that are coming to to this great uh, podcast network that we're on so um I am one of the co-hosts of the show, uh, Chief Green, my uh, other co-host of the show, who goes by the name of Chief Swag, will be joining us uh, here momentarily. But uh, we want to welcome our guest to the show, And uh, Anthony Louie, who is a police officer with the Seminole, Oklahoma Police Department. Uh, Seminole, Oklahoma is about uh, 65, 70 miles um uh, east of Oklahoma City, that's uh, a community about uh, close to about eight thousand people, and so uh, Officer Louis, uh, thanks for joining us on You and the Law on the the News Radio Network.
4: Thank you for having me.
7: <clears throat> Man, glad glad to, for you to, to join us. Uh, you know, we uh, when when me and my uh, co-host uh, heard about this uh, incident that happened with you. Uh, in, in Seminole, uh, we definitely wanted to reach out to you and, uh, get you on the show because we're, we're talking about the sacrifices that, uh, police officers make, uh, mm-hmm. for their, fa- for their families and in their communities. Uh, and so it's the life of a police officer honoring their sacrifices for their communities and their families. So this is just a, a great, um, Topic to talk with you about because of what happened. Uh, we're thankful that everything turned out great. Uh, you you kind of suffered some some serious injuries, some burns, but you're on a a speedy recovery to to get back to your community. And so, um, uh, sir, we're just glad to have you on the show. All right, so. Uh, kind of tell us a little bit about your uh, – tell us and our listeners about uh, who Officer Louie is and how long you've been involved in law enforcement, how long you've been with the Seminole Police Department.
4: Yes, uh, I've been with the Seminole Police Department for a little over a year, um, been in law enforcement for a total of eight years, um, just – I love love serving my community and uh, just uh, – just all around just all around uh, this guy
7: uh, but just uh... so so are you originally from Seminole? Yes, born and
4: Oklahoma. Raised in Oklahoma, from Seminole. Uh, been here my whole entire life. Uh, oh, okay. This, okay. This is this is home. <laughs> okay. All right. well good.
7: Good. Well, um and, you know, um the um this with with everything that's going on, officer over around the country over the last couple of months, with uh everything that's happened from George Floyd to Breonna Taylor to just um you know, the spotlight that's been on police officers has not been a good um has not been a good topic uh oftentimes. And so one of the things I think a lot of people forget to realize is that, you know, police officers uh we're humans uh we have families uh there's a lot of good men and women who serve in our communities and so um, we just want to uh make sure that we we touch on those topics because it's something that sometimes is often overlooked and uh uh because people kind of get caught up in to the to the negative things, but there's a lot of positive things that officers like you are doing in your community and so many other across Oklahoma or Arkansas or wherever, uh, officers are serving. But what brought us to, to you, sir, is, uh, the incident that happened, uh, a couple of weeks ago back in November. Uh, but before we jump into that, also, Louis, uh, I want to bring on my, uh, the co host of the show, we uh uh Officer Louis, we call him T Swag because he 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 has this swag about himself, so you know, um <laughs> that kinda comes with age, but you know, but we wanna welcome my co host and and my brother T Swag. How you doing, brother? Well, I think we're gonna catch up with him here in just a little bit, but uh okay. Louis, so th- so kinda you know Typical night back uh in 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 November, you know, you're you showed up for shifts. Uh so you're actually are you on the midnight shift? Uh
4: um
7: overnight shift. Overnight shift. Yes. So that is what, eleven
4: yes. to seven? No, that's okay. gonna be uh six four six forty five at night to six forty five in the morning.
7: Okay, so you guys are on a twelve hour shift? Yes. Okay, okay, all right. All right then. Well, um, so kind of, uh, you know, let us know, let us and our listeners know kind of what happened, how your night was going, and and kind of what, what happened um,
4: uh, that on this call that you got about uh, a house fire. Okay, hey, um, it, it was a, I would say, a, we don't normally use this word, but it was a slow night that night. Kind of everything was just kind of just going by. And, uh, around about, I believe 5 a.m., um, uh, just got to finish up some paperwork and over the loudspeaker, uh, dispatch, uh, advised of a structure fire on the 1800 block of Oak Ridge. And, uh, I was talking to my lieutenant and I said, Hey man, uh, that's, that's my area. Let's go check it out. You know, I stay over there mm-hmm. and, uh, he told me to take lead. so, uh. We we run a code over to Oak Ridge, and I exit my unit, and I I look at the eighteen hundred house of Oak Ridge, and I don't see a structure fire. And uh, I look to the south, and I was like, "Man, that's that's my house." Oh wow! I did. It It just uh, kind of took a double take. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, looked at my house and it's like, man, that's I told my lieutenant. I said, hey, I said, my kids are inside. Uh, let's go get them. And I didn't hear anything else after that. Uh, I knew my uh, my front door was fully engulfed. It was. Uh, uh-huh. I didn't even think twice. Uh, I just ran from my unit uh, towards the front door. I ran through the screen door and the front door. I landed oh, in wow. the living room. Okay, okay. Uh, okay. Once I roll once I rolled off uh, the front door, I stood up and I I took two deep breaths and I, I yelled for my kids.
6: hmm
4: And uh my uh, son Thomas was actually he, he said, Dad, we're in here, we're in the kitchen. Okay. But hey I'll see uh
7: we gotta we're gonna pause right there. We're coming up on our first break but after this break, we'll get right back into uh, what happened with you that uh, Friday night. But you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network.
4: If you want real discussions on politics, social issues, racial issues,
8: and other topics, then tune into the Bachelor News Radio Show. Listen live every Monday and Thursday. 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern at blogtalkradio.com and if you miss the show you can listen every Monday through Saturday at 8 a.m. and 3 p.m. Eastern and every Sunday at 5 a.m. and 3 p.m. at the bachelornews.airtime.pro. listen and be informed
1: greetings and great day everyone I am Elder Janelle Strickland host of the Life Cafe radio broadcast from Maximizing Life Family Worship Center. I invite you to tune in every Saturday from 5 to 6 p.m. Tune in, maximize your life with the Word of God, and be blessed. Only on the Bachelor News Radio Network.
4: to
8: you and a law on the bachelor news uh, radio show and network I should say uh, you in a law with chief Humphrey and Virgil green as well uh, if you have a question hit us up chat room is open you can dial in at 646-929-0130. 646-929-0130. thank you to their uh, the guests I will be screening calls and here's how it works real quick uh, I, I will come on the line you'll lose the the It'll get silent, and I'll say, would you like to ask a question for our host or guest? You can say yes or no. If you say no, I put you back on hold. If you say yes, you tell me what the guest the question is, and we'll ask the question for Chief Humphrey, Chief Green, and our distinguished guest as well. So keep that in mind. Fret not. All is well. You got two Two good brothers and a, a, a distinguished guest on the line that can answer all your questions for you. And i go back to Virgil Green and Chief, Chief Swag Humphrey. All right.
7: Thank you. Thank you, L.A. And and we're glad that uh, everyone has joined us back on You Under Lock. But if you're just now tuning into the show, uh, we want to welcome you to You Under Lock on the Bachelor News Radio Network. And uh, we have a guest on the show uh, with us this, uh, this afternoon, and it's uh, Officer Anthony Louie with the Seminole, Oklahoma Police Department, which is about uh, almost 70 miles east of Oklahoma City. And uh, this afternoon, we are talking about the life of a police officer, honoring their sacrifices for their communities and their families and uh Officer Louis uh, definitely uh, embodied uh, that the sacrifices that he made, especially for his family. But uh, Officer Louis, uh, I've got my uh, co-host of the show, Chief Humphrey, is is joined us. Uh, uh, Chief Swag, won't you uh, introduce yourself to Officer Louis, sir? Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah we, man, we can uh, hear yes, you, sir. man. You, you know, sometimes, you know, I don't know if it's old age is setting in with you, brother, but you know, we we can hear you. I, you know, we're glad well, you're know, joining
0: us. I, I, hey, hey, Austin Hey, man, welcome, welcome to the show. Uh, I just have one thing to say. Thank you. Uh, you know, Virgil, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this one last time. I'm not gonna say it again. You, <laughs> one day, you're gonna recognize me as the host of this show. You're gonna recommend me as a host, and 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 we're gonna we're gonna be all right then. We're gonna be all right. We're gonna be be squared away. We're gonna be squared away. But you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna give you for a Christmas gift. I'm gonna allow you to call me the co-host for a Christmas gift. For a Christmas gift. Wow. That's your my my gift. That's my gift to you. You're able to call me the co-host.
7: Okay. Okay. So. You know, I don't know what to say, man. I mean, that's just the, you know, wow, listeners. What, what can I? With a gift like that, what can you do? What can you say? But I'm, I'm just honored that, you, that you gave me that, that privilege. I am.
0: Well, it's a, it's a <laughs> gift, man. You don't even have to worry about, you don't even have to worry about returning it or anything. You know, it's just it's a special gift, man. My gift to you. I'm your uh-huh. co-host for the the year, but come January okay. the first, I'm the host again. All right, just remember that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> all right, all right bro. well hey, all right,
7: well hey, Alsa Louis, uh, man, we're we're just uh, honored to have you on the show, and we definitely thankful that that uh, everything turned out uh, well with you and, and your family. Um, so just kind of, you know, I, I know we kind of cut you off it uh, right before i break but you were uh explaining to our listeners uh, how you responded to uh the house fire and ultimately you realized, hey that's my house that's on fire and my kids are inside and you just immediately you know done what any police officer do any father would do you you just sprung into action and and didn't hesitate to go inside of a from what I'm reading, was a fully engulfed, you know, front door. Your front door was fully engulfed in
4: flames. Uh, yes, it was. Uh, it was just fully engulfed. Uh, once, <clears throat> once I made entry, uh, I could I could feel the heat. Like after I made it through the screen door and the front door, I could feel the heat, and that's when I landed. I fell and landed in the living room. And um, I I stood up, and I I yelled up for my kids. And uh, my oldest son, Thomas, was actually in the kitchen after he got his little brother out of our bedroom. And uh, I I grabbed them both up, and I told them, you know, talking to them, telling them everything's going to be okay. And uh, I tried to go back out the front door, but uh, the – like the whole, like the living room, or the couches were gone. They were already just burned down to the ground. And uh,
6: mm-hmm.
4: I, wrapped them, I wrapped them up in a a curtain that I had near the sliding back door. And I busted that out. And uh, we went out the back door into the backyard. And my okay. lieutenant was on the side of the house. And uh, we walked him across the street. Um,
7: and so, uh, you, all this was going on before the fire department even arrived. They hadn't even got to the scene yet. Is that correct?
4: Uh, I think they. Whenever I made it there, uh, yeah, after I made it out, they were actually hooking up the lines. Okay. Uh, they were hook, After we got them out, they were hooking up the lines, and um, I, I had, had enough uh, and adrenaline still flowing through me to move my vehicle out of the way around the corner, so they could put the oh, fire okay. out. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. Well, man,
7: you know, uh, like I told you at the beginning of the show, you know, when I saw the local news uh, reports on it, uh, you know, it was just uh, amazing, you know, when you saw the the uh, destruction of, that the fire had caused and, you know, unfortunately uh, you and your family lost your home, but, you know, just kind of speak to us about the, the overwhelming support that the community of Seminole and and just how people have really came to 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 help support you and your family doing doing this time and you know and that was right before the Thanksgiving holiday so you know uh, just seemed like there's just been a an uh, an overpour uh, of support for you and your family. Oh, oh yes.
4: Um. The whole town of Seminole, the, the state of Oklahoma, just, I, I'm lost for words. Uh, everybody's been so, so good to us, so generous, mm-hmm. uh, so much love and support. Um, uh, I, I can't even, I can't even express how thankful we are and, and humble that we are truly blessed to, just to be here and just to be surrounded by the people that have uh, offered words of support uh even donated. Um there's been people that actually reached out from from California all the way to Maryland that I've received from. Wild. It's just mm-hmm. so much love and support and uh I I got everybody's uh I got everybody's name written down that has sent something and I am actually on it right now. Uh, to getting everybody a thank you card, but just so much love and support, you know, I I thought, I thought everything was, um, my, my faith in humanity is kind of actually restored, you know, from, from the work that we do, you know, since Mm -hmm. people really, yeah, just it's restored. So I'm just, just lost words. I'm just thankful for everybody that has just supported us all the way through this up until now. Yeah. Well, good, good.
7: Uh, Chief Humphrey, you got anything to add to this, sir?
0: No, you know, uh, Virgil and, and I tell you, man, that's an amazing i get that's an amazing story, man. That that right there. But you know, you wouldn't expect anything less of a uh, uh of anyone, especially a father, husband or uh, mother or you know, wife, uh rescuing their families, putting their safety on the back burner to make sure their family's okay. And man, I, I tell you man, I, I much love and respect for you, man. Much love and respect for you. I mean that's uh that's amazing Thank you. and uh um, uh um, you know and, and the thing about it is you didn't do that for any recognition. You did that for out of love. Uh out of love yeah. and, and, uh, and uh and and the well being of your family. I, I tell you I, all the time. I, I don't I know you I don't know you brother, but I think that you, I think you would have done the same thing for any other fa- uh, structure that would have been on fire. I just from what I'm hearing from you and 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 things uh, i I'm pretty sure you would have done the same thing if it hadn't been your family or your house, yeah,
4: no doubt it would would have done it for anyone, and my yeah. kids know that i I tell them on a daily basis i would I would lay my life down for them and they, they know it Just make sure they're good.
7: Well, you know, we want to remind our listeners that you're listening to you and DeLong, the law the back news radio network. Uh, we have a special guest on the show, uh, officer uh, Anthony Louie with the, uh, Seminole, Oklahoma police department. Uh, we're, we're actually talking about the life of a police officer, honoring their sacrifices for their communities and their families. And, uh, you know uh, for those who are just coming on to the show listening Officer Louis uh, uh and his family lost their home in Seminole Oklahoma uh right before the uh Thanksgiving holiday and uh which was a total loss but him and his him and his family uh he got his boys out the house and uh from what i read uh Officer Louis, your wife she had just left and went to work so it was just your 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 uh your two sons were at home and I believe you had another child was, was spending the night somewhere else. So uh, this, this just happened out the blue, you know, just, just as well as, you know, so uh, again, it just seems like, you know, uh, at the right place at the right time, but we go back that, you know, you get a call, you're dispatched to an address and who would ever thought that you're going to be responding to, an emergency at your home.
4: Yeah, we. I never even think of that. Even going on patrol, even answering a call at my own residence, not at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, we, I mean, you know, go ahead, sir. You know, I'm just saying that. Just whenever we go on patrol, we we always kind of put our family off to the side to to serve the citizens. I mean, and we never even mm-hmm. think answer to answer the call at our house. Yeah. Well, and, you know,
7: and I think that's the thing that we want to, uh, myself and Chief Humphrey, want to definitely bring out to our listeners that, um, you know, officers, you know, despite everything that's going on, uh, officers are dealing with uh, a lot of things, their families, uh, serving and protecting their communities. And uh, for uh, a city the size of Seminole, which is, you know, less than 8,000 people, it's a, it's a, you know, a thriving community. Uh, there's a lot of community support, but people really uh, – this, this is what brings communities together uh, in times for officers. But, um, you know, especially – you know, you said something earlier that this kind of renewed your faith uh, in, in how everything has been going on with law enforcement, but also, Lori, we, we're coming up on our, our second break, but we're going to take this break. As soon as we come back, we'll get back into a topic. But you're listening to You and the Law on the Bass News Radio Network.
5: Recovery Month has become widely recognized and does an outstanding job of celebrating recovery, increasing awareness, and acknowledging the amazing work of providers, advocates, people in recovery, and their families. I believe our work together is helping many Americans better understand seek out attain and sustain recovery what began as a small and very good idea has grown into a national mainstream sustained and systematic public education and support effort all focused on the message that people recover getting the message of recovery right is critical because people take action based on what they hear and see and most importantly what they experience experience shapes our knowledge, our values, our attitudes, our beliefs, and our action. Of those who recognized their need for treatment but didn't receive care, the number one reason was no health coverage and could not afford the cost. No one in need should be denied the opportunity for treatment and recovery in our country.
8: To the you and the law Broadcast With Chief Keith, Keith Swag, hungry, hungry And uh, Virgil Green of course Again if you have a question The chat room is open and you can also dial in At 646-929-0130 uh, Their Facebook page Is wide open for you And I will be screening calls So what will happen again Because we've had some people that did not answer uh, You'll get a Um, A moment of silence, and I want to ask, do you have a question for our guest or our host? If you do, tell me who you are, what question you have. We'll put you on the air like our caller in waiting. Um, If you do not, I'll put you back on hold. You can enjoy uh, the two brothers that are doing the show. Back to Chief, Keith Swag, Humphrey, and of course, a good friend, uh, Chief. Virgil
7: Graham well hey we want to welcome everybody back we've got a uh a caller uh out of Chicago that has a question uh go go ahead with your question and thanks for listening to you and the law on the bachelor news radio network
8: yeah I, I just want to know uh, how common in Oklahoma is for police departments to schedule 12-hour shifts
7: uh well and I'll say this I think a lot of departments uh do have 12 hour shifts. Um uh, I don't think it's not something that's uncommon. Um and I think that kind of depends upon the the size of the agency, the the manpower, but uh, it, it's not uncommon to for agencies to have 12 hour shifts. Sometimes uh you have agencies that do have 12 hour shifts. They have what's called, you know, their own four days, they're off three days. So that gives right. officers a little time to, to, for their families and to, you know, kind of regroup. But, but yeah, it's, it's, it's typical. Chief Humphrey, uh, wouldn't you kind of agree?
0: Yeah, I I think it's, it's getting there. I mean, eight hours has always been standard and then you go to a uh, 10 hour day. Yeah. yeah. A lot of departments are going to 12 hours based, and a lot of it for recruiting efforts because, uh, you know every other week you have a three day weekend and and it also depends on the on the staffing levels uh it just depends on the department the the the, the makeup of the department uh, I've been the chief of two departments that have gone that have had twelve hour shifts they work fine for smaller departments i think larger departments twelve hours is a long day mm-hmm. That's a long that's a long uh shift for you know officers to work and but, and they look forward to that three-day weekend every other week, but it's a long shift, but it's, it's becoming more and more common.
7: Yeah. Mm. Okay, thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. Uh, Austin, Louie, uh, how long has uh, the Seminole Police Department it, been on 12-hour shift? Is that something new, or has it just been typical at the agency?
4: Uh, pretty much as typical at the agency. We're a 13-man department. And uh, we patrol over 14 square miles in the city of Seminole, and that's just pretty much standard. And we typically work, but uh, 14 days out the month. I mean, that's most all uh, pretty much all the guys like it. Don't hear any complaints about it. Oh, okay, uh,
7: caller, you got any any other uh, questions or comments?
8: No, that that's it, uh, Virgil. This is Art. Our... Hey,
7: oh, hey. We wanna thank you for listening to the show. Uh Art. This is Art Burton. He is a uh, he's somebody that we definitely gotta get on the show. Uh, uh Chief Humphrey. He is a uh, he is a historian buff when it comes to um uh, blacks in law enforcement. He is the he is the guru of Bash Rees. So you wanna know anything about Bash Rees, you go to Art Burton. We we met some Several years ago, we became real good friends. Uh, he has family in Oklahoma. Uh, he's out of where in the Illinois area,
8: Art? Yeah, Chicago suburbs. I live Chicago, South. Okay. Uh uh-huh.
7: Yeah, yeah. He he has a wealth of information related to uh, uh, blacks and law enforcement, Native Americans. So, so Art, we we're gonna definitely get you on the show so you can share with our listeners. Just the history of of, of of law enforcement because you've been done so much work with Bass Rees and on U.S. Marshals, uh, man, you you are he is Keith he is a he's a, a, a walking encyclopedia when it comes to to uh, the history of law enforcement.
8: Yeah, you know, uh, Virgil, it's a very interesting thing about the twelve-hour day uh, when the deputy marshals worked the Indian Territory in pre-statehood Oklahoma. Uh, they basically worked 24-hour days, and it would oh. take them a month or two months to make the trip through the Indian Territory. But oh, okay. you know they would get a little rest, but they would basically be on guard 24 hours a day.
7: Oh, okay, okay. Well, hey, we uh, we're definitely gonna have to get you on to to talk uh, more about that. But uh, but Art, definitely thank you for for calling me in and, and, and talking oh, with please. us. And, uh, and, and we look forward to, to talking with you again.
8: All right. Very good. Bert.
7: All right. All right. Thank All you. Right. Well, also Louie, um, you know, we, um, we're definitely honored to have you on the show, sir. Uh, there's, there's, uh, you know, the incident that happened with you and your family. Uh, we're glad that every, everyone is safe and that you're making a, uh, a speedy recovery to to get back to duty uh have you actually returned or are you still kind of uh recovering from 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 your injuries that you suffered
4: um i'm I'm still off work uh i only sustained a seventeen percent uh or second- second degree burns to like seventeen percent of my body um so i'm just just still healing. They're they're saying I'm healing mm-hmm. pretty good. I got a couple couple more sessions of physical therapy, and hopefully be mm-hmm. back to work in about about three or four weeks. Oh, okay, okay. Well, you know,
7: one of the things that uh, you know you had mentioned earlier about just to restore this this whole thing has re- kind of restored your how you feel about the community, how they look at uh, police officers because of just the overwhelming support that you've received not just in the state of Oklahoma but from around the country um and I think it's something that you know a lot of people you know if they you know step back and and, and saw that you know there's a lot of good men and women who put on a uniform every day and and on this yes. show we we've, we've talked about um we've talked about the good and we've talked about the bad we we don't shy away from those conversations that are that we need to talk about, but um, you know, the, the public really, uh, when they see a police officer, uh, I think a lot of people they have this this animosity toward officers, which, which they shouldn't have. Keith, uh, would you kind of, uh, agree with that? That you've got some people in the community who just just don't respect officers, but they just don't know everything that police officers go through.
4: Yeah, I agree with you. 100%. Yeah, I think
0: so. Yeah, birds, I think so, but but at the same time I have to also say that there are more people that that instead of displaying apathy and and not liking officers, there are more that that respect. But you're right, there there are some that there's just nothing you can do or say to uh make get them to change their mind about, you know, how they feel the negative Uh, feelings they have toward officers but there's more that that really respect us uh just like he was saying absolutely he's getting letters and he's getting you know assistance and things from all over the nation uh that says a lot about you know uh, people who really do care uh, about us and the job that we do
7: yeah and 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 i'm going to add to this uh you know before we come up on our next break and we uh you know, we end, you know, our conversation with Officer Louie. But I want to say this before we, uh, you know, we're coming up on our next break here in just a little bit, but we want to share this with our listeners, with uh, with Officer Louie. You know, we spoke, and, and Officer Louie, I found the information uh, related to uh, some donations, and if you don't mind, I'll get that information out to our listeners. And, you know, if we have anybody who's listening to the show, uh, definitely uh, – you know, Take down this, this information If you would like to, to help out also Louie and his family uh, There's two ways you can do so uh, Donations can be made To the uh, Seminole uh, FOP Lodge 138 Through PayPal by sending uh, that, uh, Your donations To Seminole FOP 138 At gmail.com uh, Donations can also Be sent to any Tinker Federal Credit Union in the State of Oklahoma as well uh, Just noting deposit For the Seminole uh, the Fraternal Order of Police Lodge 138 So uh, also Louis Just the community members have Definitely uh, stepped up to support You and your family during your, your time in need and it sounds like So many other people outside of the State of Oklahoma Is, is doing as well And so um we it's just we're just thankful that that you and your boys made it outside of that home safely and that you know you're on a road to a
4: speedy recovery. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and we like I say, we're just truly thankful and and blessed over here as well. Well, good, good.
7: And you know, one of the things I you know comments I like to add to this is that you know, oftentimes you know we or you know we all these groups who. You know, want to talk about defunding the police, uh, and they have a problem with police departments not being transparent. Uh, as a whole, there's a there's a lot of things that we we know we need to change. But you know, Keith, I would like to see some of these uh, groups, uh, you know, really, you know, st- kind of support police officers. Uh, and really uh, step up Yeah you may have a problem with the agency Being transparent You may have a problem with, with A police shooting or some type Of excessive force Has been used But as a whole I think it. To me Keith it just it would bring More uh, It would kind of Bring these agents These organizations and law enforcement Together to have a, a conversation that Instead of being you know, always so confrontational with police when when they do hear about things like this that no matter what race the officer is, that they step up and and, and uh and recognize uh, our police officers who are who are sacrificing their lives for their communities. So uh also lord we, we definitely wanna thank you for taking the time out and, and coming on the show and uh sharing with our, us and our listeners about uh, what happened with you uh, in Seminole, Oklahoma But, uh, sir, we wish you all the well And, uh, you know, we'll definitely be in touch with you uh, To make to, to see how things are going with you But, uh, Keith, do you have any last words for uh, Officer Lewis Before we uh, take a break?
0: No, man, I just want to say uh, God bless you, man Bless you and your family you know, Have a amazing holiday uh, it just shows the kind of heart you have, and uh, man, just we'll be praying for you. And uh, and just just remember that, man, you're in our hearts and prayers.
4: And All thank right. you guys very much for uh, All for, right, having you definitely, me, for having me. And it's been an honor. It's been a privilege for, to be on the show.
7: <clears throat> All right, you're definitely welcome. Well, hey, Alcindor, we want to thank you, and uh, we're going to take a quick break. But you're listening to You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network.
6: If you've got a clogged up nose, Simply Stuffy. If you've got a snuffly nose, Simply Stuffy. If the rest of you feel fine, but your nose is out of line, give your snuffer what it means, Simply Stuffy. Simply Stuffy. From the makers of Children's Tylenol, it has only the medicine your child needs to make a stuffy nose simply disappear. If you want to smell a rose, get the stuff out of your nose. If you take a feeling snotty, Simply Stuffy. Simply Stuffy. Use as directed.
5: Now you can increase your yields by using Conklin's Guardian slow-release nitrogen additive. Guardian holds your nitrogen in the root zone where it's needed over a longer period of time. That in return can reduce your nitrogen rates. That saves you money. And whether you want it in a dry or liquid formula, Guardian helps in reducing groundwater contamination too. So save your money and be a good steward all at the same time by using Conklin's Guardian.
8: to the show, You and the Law, with uh, Chief uh, Keith Swag, Humphrey, and uh, uh, Chief Virgil Green here. Again, uh, uh, we've got a lot of people on the phones, and I just want to make sure everybody understands that you do not have to ask a question, but if I do uh, screen the call, if you could just say yes or no, that would be awesome, Uh six four six nine two nine zero one three zero, the number to get in touch with uh, Keith Swag, and 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 Keith uh, Virgil uh, doing a uh, phenomenal job As always great topic Thanks to Officer Lewis uh, For his his position And um, blessings and peace To his family We can get back to the the, the brothers The two chiefs Chief uh, Keith Humphrey And Chief Virgil Green Well
7: hey LA definitely thank you for, For bringing us back uh, on you and the law, and man, we, you know, man, that that background music definitely gets you gets you pumped up. Uh, you know, T. Swag, he he got some some moves over there, so I know he's probably, you know,
8: shaking the lead Oh, he like, hey, know. look, he he like he like this mystical right here. He like this. Oh, he like this. <laughs>
0: <laughs> y'all, gonna, y'all gonna keep on, man. Y'all gonna have me. Y'all gonna have me stepping, man. Bring back my stepping days, Then <laughs> make, it. make me start doing the Sigma thing. <laughs>
7: well, hey, well, hey, We definitely uh, uh, want to welcome our listeners back. As you can tell, we uh, this is a podcast show where we, we we touch on some serious topics, but we also like to to have some fun with each other and, and hopefully you guys can laugh along with us. And, and, uh, that's what makes you keep coming back. Uh, week after week listening to, to you and the law on this great podcast network, but you know, uh, if you, uh, just now tuning in, uh, you missed uh, uh we had a, a great guest on the show, uh, officer Anthony Louie with the Seminole Oklahoma police department who back in November, several weeks ago, um, got a call, hey, there's a house fire. He uh, responded just as normal, but quickly realized that he got there, hey, this is my house, it's fully engulfed. And, and he, you know, busted through the front door and uh, got his two boys out to safety and uh, just a heroic officer. And we definitely thank him for his service uh, to his community. Uh, and it's stories like that, Keith, that, you know, uh, there's so many things that happen throughout the, the so many agencies, but it's stories like that that we definitely would like to bring to, to our listeners uh, to listen to you and the law.
0: Yeah, you know, I think, uh, I think sometimes uh, some people forget that we are human. Uh, we own homes. We own cars. We make mortgage payments. We make house payments. We have kids. We have wives, husbands. You know, we we sweat, we buy groceries, you know, we enjoy holidays. And, you know, I think they forget that. And, and, and we're not superhuman, you know. And, and this just shows you that you just never know. I guarantee you he didn't go to work that day thinking that he was going to have to come back and save his family. Uh, you know, we know that there's a possibility that we we're going to have to save someone out here. But I guarantee you he didn't think, you know, it was going to be his family. But you know, it, it just goes to show you that we are human, uh, and that uh, we have the same problems that you know that everyone else you know has. And like I said, man, my heart goes out to to the brother and his family.
7: De- definitely, Keith, and, and you know, uh, I think you know one of the things that you know I touched on it before you know before we uh, got off the got off with him was that you know I just kind of go back to. Just this this struggle that's between uh, so many organizations with with police departments, and not with all police departments, but you know, whether it's the Black Lives Matter, the NAACP, I think these organizations really need to 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 really they want law enforcement to build a, a partnership and, and with them. But they also need to also do the same thing, and and this is a a clear example of of an officer, you know, sacrificing his life for his community for his family. He would have done the same thing if it wasn't his family. Um, and I just think that would just kind of bring bring us more closer together than than being such a divide. And you know, our listeners out there, if you're listening, you've got a comment, uh, please you know, share it in the chat room or come on the, the line and talk with us about it. But I just think we need to really look at how, do, you know, how do we improve the relationship at the same time uh, for those organizations such as the NAACP, Black Lives Matter, and all these other organizations. Uh, when you hear about things like this, I think it would it would really benefit if you reached across uh, and, and show some support for uh, police officers across the country. That's just my opinion, Keith.
0: You know, Virgil, it, it's it's one of those things where even even if someone is 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 demonstrating some resistance, uh, we still have we still have an obligation to continue to try to reach. We just can't. We're not in a we're not in a profession that we can just try something once. Uh, we have to continue to try. Uh, We've always got to be above and beyond when it comes to the relationships or building relationships with our community. And I think we get frustrated, uh, just like the community, you know, gets frustrated. So we both get, but, but we, still have to, we still have to realize our job is to protect and serve. And serving is not getting so frustrated with our community that we give up on them and that we don't want to work with them. And, and thinking mm-hmm. that everybody, taking an apathetic approach, thinking that everybody in the community doesn't like us because there's a lot of times that individuals have not ever encountered police officers, but they have a kind of a, you know, they might have a, a, a bad feeling about, about police based on one of their relatives, something one of their relatives or their friends told them, or just based on what they're seeing from TV. And mm-hmm. so it's incumbent upon us to you know, have those meetings and to go to those, those community meetings and things and, and, and listen to those conversations that, that people are having, uh, and their concerns, and not become defensive. Uh, Yeah, exactly. It it can happen. Exactly. It's one, it's one step at a time. You're not going to change a person's opinion automatically. You know, it's one step at a time.
7: Okay. Uh, Hey, uh, we've got a, a question, uh, from one of our listeners. Uh, uh, you can go ahead with your question? You on the on the law on the Bachelor News Radio Network?
8: Actually, uh Tyrese was on, on the line. Um, he hung up, uh he was in Philly, um, but he asked, is there um a mandatory and I think you guys answered it, is it a mandatory uh sort of fund for um the, the fallen um colleagues that you have or their families? or is it something that agencies put out there? And I think it's a good point just to follow up is that, you know, we, you guys do eloquently about, uh, talk about how, you know, um, black and Brown and the discrepancies and hypocrisies and the racism that uh, quite frankly goes on and people look at nine eleven, but, but I think, uh, uh, chief swag hated on that. You guys are still human. So I think it's a great question that, um, do you guys uh, put in place, especially if you're chiefs, mandatory situations in your agencies where you have to give, if if you have a a, a fallen colleague or family members or something like that, the the way the officer went through, or is it just something that you guys just do per agents?
0: If I if I can if I can if I can talk about that, we recently had we we've had something like that, LA and and to the listener. When, when when an officer is encountering some type of hardship, you know whether it's like Officer Louis encountered or, or an illness or you know death, uh, no one has to ask. Uh, all it takes is one officer to, to find out that another officer or that officer's family, whether it's immediate family or someone in the in their family, is having a difficult time uh, or is experiencing a tragedy. Uh, you, you see the. You see the blue family come out in, in droves, uh, fundraisers, donations. Uh, they'll go over and, and, and mow lawns, uh, pick up babies, you know, babysit, take kids to school. Those are just things that just come. It's like a natural reaction. It's just like you would with, with your own family. And so a lot of times people don't see that. It, and I, and what I've seen, L.A. and Virgin, Virgin you've seen this. It doesn't matter – how contentious a relationship could be between a group of officers or within a department officers are going to step forward and do something for those individuals they look at them as an individual it's one of the times that they see people each other as human and they forget about the issues that they may be having and they look at they, they 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 do something they come together and do something and then there's there. so really you don't have to do it you don't have to make anything mandatory i mean they're, they're, that those, those things just come naturally at, at times yeah well, and also to
7: add to that you know there is the uh there is a uh an organization that's called the national law enforcement officers memorial fund uh they've been around for a long time and uh they're a 5013 c organization and they uh take donations in and they also uh, have funds set up for families of police officers that's been killed in the line of duty. And, uh, and so again, that's, uh, that's the uh, national law enforcement officers memorial sign. And uh, you know, (laughs) national police week, uh, I believe is in May. Uh, So there is the
0: second week of May, I
7: believe second week of May. So there's always, um, you know, it's something that we'll definitely touch on when that time comes around, uh, where fallen officers are recognized uh, for the sacrifices that they that they've made, and uh, and so, uh, but again, you know, in a time, you know, a lot of people, you know, with first responders, people, firefighters, for some reason, Keith, they kind of rally around each other. So so well, police officers. There's a little there's a little difference, but for some reason, firefighters. Man, when something happens within a firehouse with one of those guys, you you see everybody coming together. Not saying that police officers don't all come together, but you just kind of see the difference in in the the difference between you know a firefighter and a police officer. But uh, in this situation with Officer Louis, who we had on as a guest. Uh, his whole community has come to support him and his family. Uh, the word has got gotten around uh, outside of Oklahoma where he's, you know, him and his family is definitely receiving a lot of support from around the country. And that's what you want to see. You want to see families, um, you know, being, uh, receiving that type of support and Keith, you know, you know, this is going to be a part one of a series next week. We're going to kind of follow up with, with this conversation about the sacrifices that police officers make. uh, Because I think it's something that really needs to be talked about because several weeks, uh, several weeks ago in a, uh, my former agency that I was a police chief in in Arkansas, uh, a young police officer was killed in the line of duty. He was shot. Um, And, and so, uh, there's just – there's some things that we, that I think, Keith, that we have the platform to, to really bring out and, and talk about. And even with COVID, Keith, one of the things that just today, the the statistics today, Keith, show that 272 police officers have lost their life so far Actually, this year. 277.
0: 277, 270, 277. 277. It's, Two seventy seven so, This up wow. Officer deaths are up hundred and four percent. And yeah, yeah. And of those two hundred and seventy seven, forty three are gunfire, forty seven are auto related, and the other hundred and eighty seven are other, a majority of those are a COVID related. Oh COVID related. A lot related, of them yeah. are yeah, a lot of those are uh just I was just reading one, a young lady who was um um who assisted with nine eleven in New York uh contracted cancer and, and died uh uh Saturday. So it's mm-hmm. just I mean 187 other uh other 187 deaths linked to other uh mm-hmm. uh causes other than mm-hmm. gunshot and auto related. And that is auto related. Yeah, I you know man, I tell you 2020's been rough, but but yeah, the 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 blue family and the red family comes together. And and to that and to that young that, that person, the uh, callers question and the communities come the community step up too. Oh my yeah, goodness, the community step up. Uh yeah. so so big. And and then there's yeah. there's there's state funds and federal funds uh that that take care of those officers families. Um uh, mm-hmm. You know, the kids go to state schools, tuition covered. Uh, there's lifetime counseling, dental, medical, um, you know. And so there's so many resources out there. But the one resource that's not out there, you can't bring these men and women back to their home, to their, to their families. families. And so yeah, exactly. there's nothing you can do to wash away or wipe away the pain the long term pain uh you know of the of the for the families uh the exactly. most difficult thing to see most difficult thing to see is 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 and I've done this as a chief and a member of the honor guard the most difficult thing to do is fold that have that folded flag and hand that flag to a widow or to a child and that yeah. is just don't, yeah that's it, just that's just difficult it is it is well, hey Keith,
7: we're we're coming up on the the last few minutes of the show, but you know, I put this out at the beginning of the show that we're really excited about the new um, podcast, uh, the Bachelor News Radio Network uh, website, uh, where you can listen to rebroadcasts uh, of you and the law uh, anytime you like, and that uh, website is uh, the Bachelor News. Radio Network.com. That's the Bachelor News Radio Network.com. And uh, please go to there and listen to our rebroadcast of the shows. And uh, we want to definitely thank uh, everyone for tuning in and, and listening to us. But uh, we're going to, you know, uh, pick this uh, topic back up uh, on our next episode of You and the Law. And we want to remind you definitely to follow us on our social media. Platforms, but uh, Keith, man, another great show, brother. And uh, I love you, Bird. I love you, Bird. I
4: love you, L.A. All
7: right. Well, hey, we want to thank everybody. And uh, so we will see you next week on You and the Law on the Bachelor News Radio Network.